Hey everybody, welcome to Politico's Off Message Podcast. I can't even say uh, this week's because we're doing a lot of them, uh, kind of on the fly. Uh, this one is being recorded from my dining room in uh, lovely downtown Kensington, Maryland with my dog sitting at my feet. Just drove back from Cleveland yesterday because I don't like to fly uh, with a couple of Politico's in tow. It took me a mere eight and a half hours, uh, but I did get my first good night's sleep in a week. Uh, got about 10 hours of sleep, which I think is about one hour more than I got in the aggregate of the five days that I was in Cleveland. So this week uh, was really, really interesting for a lot of reasons. Just finished up with uh, Trump's big speech. But to me, the, me the big memory is going to be uh, Ted Cruz. And we were lucky enough, obviously, to get Ted Cruz last Friday. And anyone who listened to what Ted Cruz told me, that he was watching and waiting on Donald Trump, that he had a particular vision for the country, that he cared more about that than the Republican Party and cared more about that than Donald Trump, I think would have had a pretty good idea of what was going to happen. That said, I want to tell you a little story. So Cruz drops his bombshell on the on the, the convention. He is booed out the door. His wife, Heidi, <coughs> is escorted out of the Quicken Loan Center under guard because people are afraid that she might get attacked. And I decided oh, this fiasco ends and I leave and it's like, uh, I don't know, midnight. I'm looking for a place to pick up an Uber. The closest hotel to the center is the Marriott. And I happen to know that the Texas delegation was hanging out at the Marriott. So I figured let's kill two birds with one stone. I'll go over there, chat with some of the people in the cowboy hats, see how that what they thought of the cruise thing. And I'll have uh, the Uber will come quickly. Maybe there might even be a taxi there. So I get to the circle in front of the hotel. It's not exactly packed, but there are some tipsy uh, ladies in cowboy hats and they seem to be pretty pro cruise. I chat with them for a little while. I look down on my phone and I start putting in the coordinates uh, for Uber. I look up and I see an SUV pull into the driveway. I don't think much of it. I keep working on my phone. I look up again and two big guards get out of the SUV and they open the back door. And who should pop out but Ted and Heidi Cruz? Uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And Cruz walks over to me, uh, shakes my hand. And by the way, if you've never uh, shaken uh, Cruz's hand, uh, it is, he de he tries to break at least three fingers every time you do shake his hand. Uh, and he says to me, well, I enjoyed talking with you the other week. And he said, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I, I let people know what was going to happen. And then he says, uh, what'd you think of it generically? And I uh, said, I thought, and I'm going to use some bad language here. I was tired and I did not <laughs> edit myself. And I said, well, I thought, you know, you had some big balls in there, uh, <laughs> Senator. He said, he proceeded to say, thank you. <laughs> and then he said, we're going to let the chips fall where they may. Uh, and that has proven to be pretty prophetic. But maybe the most interesting thing that happened is how much time I got with Cruz because nobody came up to him. Uh, all of the people uh, who were in the circle, most of them women, flocked to Heidi Cruz and, and she hugged each and every one of them. And I couldn't tell if she was getting emotional, but a lot of the other people, a lot of the other women from Texas were getting emotional. Uh, it was an extraordinary moment, really, uh, to see them offer their support to her. I, I think time will tell whether or not this had any lasting damage on the Trump candidacy, but it certainly starkly illustrated the divisions in the party. The big question here in terms of Cruz's own future is whether or not this big gamble, and it was a huge gamble, will propel him towards 2020 uh, or label him forever as an insurgent uh, willing to blow up his own party. The day after Cruz made uh, his speech, Republicans were already talking about making 
Cruz Clinton bumper stickers. So it was a pretty dramatic week, uh, and and I stumbled into a you know a little bit of history uh, that night. Uh, that that really kind of made the week for me. So that brings us to our our guest, Bill Crystal. I'd been wanting to talk to Bill for a while. Uh, I I'm kind of a, a fan of his. I really like his writing. Uh, sometimes I disagree with him. I think he's been wrong on a few things. Um, I like the way he tweets. I just think he has an interesting perspective. And what I really wanted to know is what was it like for the arch Trump hater, the the Mr. Never Trump, to sit and watch this spectacle. Uh, and Crystal is intellectually honest enough uh, and I think witty enough to present a pretty unvarnished opinion, both positive and negative about Trump. And I thought this conversation was fascinating. I'll give you one little takeaway. Uh, I asked him, uh, and he really surprised me. I asked him if he thought Trump was anti-Semitic. Obviously, Crystal is Jewish and has been very critical of some of these tweets, retweets uh, of Trump, by Trump of white supremacists and the whole Jewish star thing on the Hillary ad. And he told me he didn't think Trump was an anti-Semite. He just thought he was sort of thoughtless. Um, well, onto our regular bits of business. Please rate us on iTunes. I will omit the usual. We're doing really, really well because people, at least four or five people, walked up to me this week and made fun of me uh, about saying how well we're doing. Um, but we're doing pretty well. Uh, and uh, as usual, send me emails. Again, the email traffic is really picking up. A little more critical this week. Got some criticism about the Cruz interview. People thought I might have been a little too soft on him. Um, maybe I was. Uh, sometimes when you get people in the news cycle, uh, when you want them to make news, you tend to back away from your standard operating procedure. I thought it was a pretty good interview, pretty elucidating, and I think it'll uh, hold up in terms of uh, history. So again, send emails to me at gthrushapolitico.com. Without any further ado, here is Bill Crystal. So, Bill, you knew Dan Quayle. You worked with Dan Quayle. Is Mike Pence? Gee, I didn't. Yeah, I've got various, very various witty comments I could make, but it won't make since I very much like and respect Dan Quayle and think he got a bum rap. Right. I mean, Mike Pence and my dad didn't, you know, had a good political career, a charmed political career. And we should say that you were chief of staff to to Dan Quayle. I mean, yes. Quayle had a charmed political career as a, as a congressman and a senator. He gets picked for VP. That's not that dissimilar, I suppose. After 12 years in Washington, obviously Pence had the additional four years as governor. Um, but uh, the, the quail rollout was kind of botched, and he wasn't quite ready for it, whereas I think Mike Pence actually had expected it for a little while at least, and they've done a pretty competent job of introducing him, I think. How do you compare the... I mean, like, uh, Quayle spoke with one of our reporters, Darren Samuelson, and gave, uh, uh, and gave Pence a pretty stirring endorsement. I mean, what do you think of Pence in terms of what he brings to the can, uh, brings to Trump? And I mean, I just think... When I look, I worked for Dan Quayle when he was vice president. I wasn't in the 88 campaign. I watched it with kind of horror, somewhat close up. I'd come to Washington three years before to work in the, in the second term of the Reagan administration. And what I learned from not watching Quayle's, unfortunately, you know, bad performance in 88, and I think it de- we had a decent performance in 92. Quayle held his own in the debate with Al Gore, et cetera, is that vice presidents don't matter much. You know, Bush won by, right. I think, nine points in 88 <laughs> after this, uh, with Quayle being ridiculed widely. And we lost by, you know, seven points in 92 with Quayle being, right. I think, at least among some, being thought, you know what, he, he, the ridicule was unfair, and he did, as I say, did well in the debate. He was a good vice president, did well in the debate with Gore. So vice presidents are kind of overrated, which I do think, though, if I can lead to a broader point, which yeah. is, I mean, we're all interested in the convention day to day, and it has been a clown show so far, honestly. And I underestimated him throughout the primaries, obviously, and I don't want him to be president of the United States, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to make the case against him. But analytically, just looking at this election, 
I don't know. If I were in Hillary Clinton's campaign, I would be worried. She's up like five points over Trump, who's made all these mistakes. Right. And he has more room to grow, I think, because he could reassure people if he runs a semi-intelligent, semi-normal campaign. Whereas what's she going to do? I mean, there's no reintroduction of Hillary Clinton that could possibly be made at this point, I think. I don't know. I think there is, again, you're talking about like, well, I think there won't be because I think she's too damn cautious, right? I think... I think you could potentially have something of a, of a rebranding and move and move the dial a little bit if she chose, for instance, to get out of the penthouse suite and actually talk to people, which she doesn't do. So I th- I, th- I think and Matt, my our mutual friend Maggie Haberman and I about 18 months ago did a story talking about Hillary's complete antipathy towards the press, and I think it's entirely self-destructive. I mean, is it true she hasn't had a press conference she, like she hasn't in a, this whole campaign? Right. That's right. I th- she has not had a press conference uh, since, uh, I believe, Seinfeld was on the air. <laughs> um, and the last one she had was, uh, I'm, I'm misremembering this, but the Guernica press conference, I think, was... Yeah, that was, that was a highlight. I would generally say, if you're giving a press conference, try to keep away from uh, the iconic massacre uh, paintings of the 20th, 20th century, right? No, that's a good... You did that with Quail, I thought. I, thank you. I'm really the right person. <laughs> I'm the right person to talk to about managing media, you know, appearances and not, not avoiding spelling bees. Where you, good where, idea. Uh, good idea. Good. But let's get back to... I'm let's, get off, let's get off the good old days of Dan Quail yeah, okay. here, right? <laughs> so, so he got a bum rap. He's a good guy. Um, but in ter- okay, so in terms of uh, the Reagan speechwriter who's working for Trump, now you're a words guy. I think, but just trying to step back and be analytical and kind of cold-blooded, I think his problem is he's got all the supporters who want to be more enthusiastic about it. He's got to reassure wavering Republicans, independents who occasionally vote Republican, that he's it's okay to be for him. He'll be pretty responsible. That you can get, here's what, if I were help advising him politically, I would say, what you want is to preserve the distinctive brand, you know, the excitement, the, right. the, the, the outsiderism, the sh- you know, willing to tell it like it is and all that. But you also need to reassure people that you actually could be president of the United States. So uh, if you want to think of it in casino terms, I guess, or whatever, you can have the glitziest casino in the world. That's great. The you know most exciting, crazy entertainers and and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, this still has to. The shower has to work. The room has to function. The casino, you know, the, the right. poker games have to be honest. I mean, he needs to kind of take the first. He's taken care of. There's no need for more glitz, more drama, more. All that. So I guess I do think he needs to reassure people. Uh, maybe that's just me being too conventional. Maybe I don't get it. Maybe Trump should just ride that populist kind of demagogic horse all the way to the White House. And maybe he could. I, I kind of hope not. But, but I, so if I were advising him, I would say, yeah, I mean, this is kind of conventional. I think you've got to tone it down a little, emphasize maybe the kinds of advisors who will be around you. Give people who are dubious about you an excuse to come over. So I do think the thing he has going for him that I think, and maybe I'm, again, too scarred by 92 to go back to the Bush quail years. Right. In a change year, being the candidate of change is a huge advantage. Voters will want to overlook their concern, or not overlook, but overcome their concerns about the change candidate because they do want change. You know what I mean? They want, if you can give them an excuse to vote for you, Clinton and Gore did this in 92, people forget how unbelievably big the question marks around Clinton were, but before, as he staggered to the Democratic nomination. And look at the numbers per row. Right. So people, if people can just, but they want to be for change. This is Hillary Clinton's biggest problem, I think. She is more than any other American could be the candidate of the status quo, I would say the embodiment of the status quo in a year where people want change. And so if I were Trump, I would say you got the the aggressive change vote. You need to get the vote of people who think, is that, but is that Trump change? Is that just a little too risky? So what I would do, this is not his style, is A, talk about some 
kind of more normal, conventional types who he has been consulting and looks forward to consulting, respected foreign policy figures, generals, admirals, you know, uh, businessmen or whatever. So people sort of get the sense that, yeah, he's kind of a, a loud mouth and says some outrageous things and is a troublemaker. But at the end of the day, you know, it'll be kind of grown-ups surrounding him. I think that would be important for him to do. And I do think it would be, he'd be well advised to semi-apologize for some of the things he said. And he could get, again, the bar for him is so low. People like me wouldn't forgive him, but I think a lot of people out there would yeah, want so, to forgive him. And the mode, if, would be, if it, and it would, the mode and the way to do it would just be to say, look, a tough I, primary. I accept this presidential nominee. And I, you know what, I've thought a lot about this. This is the presidency of the United States. And I've had a colorful career, I'm a colorful guy, say what I think, blah, blah, blah. blah. But you know, I probably said a few things I shouldn't have said. And I, right. now that it's a presidential race, I'm gonna comport myself as the president of the United States. And you know what, I can make some joke. I, I may disappoint a few of you by not, you know, by cutting back a little on the tweets, but I'm going to, I think that would go a long way. The media would give him credit. Certainly Republicans who want to believe right. in him would give him credit. Uh, whether he would do anything that acknowledges that he, everything he's done hasn't been perfect, uh, I don't know. Well, the other thing that I would do if I were him uh, is that, boy, uh, and has there ever been any more pundity uh, preface. But uh, what I would do if I were him is the classic Reagan and Clinton thing, which is I would identify five Americans not named w without the surname of Trump uh, to talk about people that he, quote unquote, met out on the campaign trail who who symbolize the problems of the country. Why, have you ever heard Donald Trump invoke uh, an experience he had with a normal person? You know, that's, that's, that's a good point. I would do the same. And, and I think with Glenn Thrush and Bill Crystal giving him this advice, he's quite unlikely to take it. And you know what? He's done pretty well. Maybe he's right not to take it. Right. Um, but I also was struck by the kids' talks. I mean, they were pretty generic. I mean, should but it was they have better. Some, it was better than what people expected because that's the right. bar is so low. But I mean, shouldn't it was like good, some... You know what it was? It was good airplane food. Right, yeah, exactly. Right, but shouldn't yeah. there be some anecdote? Maybe they didn't spend much time with him, honestly. So, I mean, I don't know. But, you know, some story that reveals... I mean, that's kind of traditional for these speeches, right? right? Uh, I'll never forget the time Dad picked up his own towel. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, so I... And I'd say the featuring of the kid... Now, I could be wrong. Maybe we're just in a reality TV yeah. political... Uh, mode now in this country and what people want to see is hey the family hey the kids look nice hey we like that that's exciting the wife the third wife the kids you know i mean uh, maybe that's where we are you know i'm just out of touch i'm personally willing to acknowledge that to, to some degree but I, but I wouldn't have gone so heavy family i don't think donald trump what, what, what does he get out of but what's your move you, there's no other there was no other move last night after you had the first night was well, the first night was literally like watching an auschwitz documentary it was death. It was the most depressing four hours. I mean, I went but to... But no, I agree with that, but it, I don't agree with it quite that. I'm not going to... That's a little extreme, but... Not uh, actually, maybe... No, but I mean, it needn't have... Dachau. Couldn't he have set up the first two nights? <laughs> I mean, it's supposed to be national security and the economy. Right. Those aren't crazy themes. Right. Have a boring, you know, bunch of foreign policy types. I mean, he had some people there who are credible people, Mike Mukasey, the former attorney general. Right. Just let them give a serious, you know, semi-serious critique of Obama's exceeded the law, the executive orders, the rule of law, the constitution... Is it a stretch to think that Donald Trump cares at all about those things? Yes. Would, would a normal swingish Republican voter in the suburbs of Northern Virginia think, you know what, if Mike Mukasey says he's pretty confident that Trump for all the right. talk would kind of go in that direction, maybe, maybe I'd be okay with it. But that's not their theory. Their theory is it's reality TV. The one thing we know about reality TV right. is people, once they see the, the main guy, they want to see the wife, the kids, right. the uncles, the aunts, you know, and right. that's what the convention has been like so far, which makes me think he won't take 
you're on my advice for Thursday night, shockingly enough. But. <laughs> well, let me bust your chops on, on something. So you, ha- you had a candidate in Dan Quayle, and I'm not going to argue, I'm not going to litigate a 25-year-old case here, but, geez, it's more than 25 years, uh, close to 30 years. Um, Dan Quayle was a candidate who was, was not perceived, rightly or wrongly, Bill, as having an enormous amount of intellectual heft. But he was surrounded, as was Reagan, by a core of serious policy people and genuine public intellectuals, right? That, was, that has been the model of kind of a quote-unquote not-the-brain-surgeon candidate for years and years and years. The difference between, it seems to me, the thing that almost personally offends you about this guy is that he has chosen to de-intellectualize the presidency, that he is somebody who does not surround himself by people who are, who are of the highest caliber. Talk a little bit about that. This is a guy... Uh, I mean, am I right to point that out? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't. I hope it's not just a matter of like my, my being aesthetically displeased or, or my vanity being hurt because I work for Dan Quayle and whatever. I, I think, look, it meant whatever you think of George W. Bush. To take a more recent example, right. where I think people thought uh, that he was lightweight. But if you think of it, it showed a certain seriousness about becoming president of the United States, especially when he had no foreign policy experience of his own. So surround himself with Colin Powell, Condi Rice, Dick Cheney, et cetera. People could say it didn't work out. It right. shows the limits of that. And maybe that's a fair point at some level. They fight with each other. And having Rumsfeld and Powell you know, battle the entire first term might not have been the best way to run foreign policy. Still, I, I think he got a certain amount of deserved credit for that. You know, It showed that he, he took the job seriously. Yeah, so one of the things I don't like about Trump, among others, is that he doesn't seem to even think that that's an appropriate thing to acknowledge. But at the end of the day, it does come down to the person himself. And and I do think in that respect, people can say what they want about Quayle, about Bush, about others on both sides, really, who, you know, had limitations and flaws. But none of them had this kind of cavalier attitude. None of them said the things Trump has said. And, right. and what does that show? I mean, I think they didn't, A, they didn't think some of those things, but B, they also thought, geez, I'm running for president of the United States, or well, case vice president, and I, I can't just pop off in ways that, you know, that Trump has. It's just, it's just bad for the country, really. You can't say that a judge who right. happens to be issued one ruling that was somewhat unfavorable in a civil case is, is, you know, a Mexican or is representing the interests of Mexicans, whatever that would mean, because I guess his parents had come from right. Mexico. I mean, it's just that's kind of not what you do in America. You don't, you don't attack personally and 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, uh, denigrate your competitors with these kinds of adjectives and the way he does. That that's never. I, I was almost say that's. We've had very tough politics the last 20, 25 years. The Clinton impeachment and so forth. Tax on Bush. It's almost never been, but nothing quite like what Trump has done. It's certainly not by the candidate themselves. Whatever you think, Barack Obama, McCain. I mean, there was nothing like this. And but how important? How, how I think that's bad for the country. That is really third world politics. You don't just make the policy case. You don't even make a character case, which I think is how kind do you of put legitimate. That gene- you make a kind of pure denigration of the of the guy you're, or woman you're running against. But it's a, but it's obviously we're having a lowest common denominator uh, effect. And I, and I think it's it's making the entire atmosphere toxic in a way that we haven't seen in, in previous campaigns. Look, I think, say what you want about Hillary Clinton. I've covered her for a really long time. The, the woman's tendency is not to go ad hominem. The, her tendency is to stand up there and read a, a laundry list of policy prescriptions. I think the Clintons bear some responsibility for this, for the way they attacked some of their critics in 98, but we could, or they had people, yeah. they had surrogates. But it is interesting that they had surrogates, right. which tells you something already. It's one thing to have your Sid Blumenthal's out there. Right. It's nothing to do it as the candidate. And... And it is different because it really does denigrate the presidency, I think, in a way that 
Yeah, I totally agree. I think we were in a, uh, this is one reason why people like me are you know, sort of upset and unhappy about this election. It's not just I don't happen to like this personal guy, this guy, or I don't agree. He disagrees. I disagree with him on more issues than I would normally disagree with a Republican right. nominee. It is, I think, a whole different level of of just political discourse and, and political activity, and it's not good for the country. Is there a market for positivity? Now, now we talked about, like, because <clears throat> that's the issue. <clears throat> We've known this about negative ads. You know, I, I'll never forget when I was first covering politics. It's like I asked some consultant, maybe this was in a mayoral race, like, why don't you run a positive ad? And they're like, because it doesn't work, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, how do you, I mean, is there a market? We saw in 2008 there was a market for positivity at a time when the country was really going into the, into the dumper. But uh, is there right now, do you think, a place for positivity? Yeah, we don't know because it hasn't been tried that much, I right. suppose. I'm, I'm not sure there isn't, actually. And I do think the kind of independent candidates that people like we were talking about, if they had run, would have run positive campaigns, would have tested the proposition that people are a little sick of all the negative attacks. And again, but I, I sort of distinguishing they're tough and somewhat unfair <clears throat> negative issue attacks, right? You blow up something that's kind of small right. and make it, oh, you know, that would be the attacks on <clears throat> Romney, perhaps. They're tough and, neg and somewhat unfair, negative, even personal attacks. Mitt Romney, you know, fired X number of people or whatever. Right. Or, but that, we're at a level beyond that. I think that was people in 88, people remembered the attacks on Dukakis as being, whoa, that's really, a t and it works. And you look at it tough now. Campaign. Yeah, really. I mean, he did actually veto a bill, you know, on the Pledge of Allegiance. He did actually have a furlough program that he defended. Well, Willie now, Horton. was it a little dramatic to, you know, to, 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 to well, Willie Horton, No, the Willie Horton thing, I think, even in this, even in this context, was over the top. I mean, him riding around in a tank. That was fair game. But, well, but it was actually a, 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 right. a Massachusetts, you know, policy that he had put in place that had resulted in this terrible uh, rape and uh, by, by, by this this convict. Now, you know, it was it, I, so yes, that that I think is the traditional way in which in, in a democracy politics gets somewhat demagogued and and flaws get exaggerated and people get blamed in ways that are, maybe aren't entirely fair. But that's still a whole different level from Lion Ted and Crooked Hillary right. and the kind of stuff uh, that Trump just routinely does. And that, that, I think, is kind of third world politics where you and uh, and I, unfortunately, <clears throat> and this I do think is Paul Manafort, who is uh, basically running the Trump campaign. And it's I, I, you know, I joke about it a little bit on Twitter, stuff, but it's not a joke. It's not an accident that this guy worked for all these authoritarians abroad. That's his image of politics. He relished crushing the never Trump forces. It's right. a little crazy, isn't it? You, you, you want unity. You want these people to support you, presumably. Right. And yet his image, of course, is intimidation. And intimidation works, incidentally. I do. Th and this is another sad thing that, uh, again, there's always, it's always happened. God knows we had Mayor Daley. We had all kinds of bosses. Yeah. We, there's always been behind the scenes, you might say, intimidation, but never quite as overt as today. Oh, we had it with you. I, I can identify several uh, figures. I will say, uh, if you kind of read uh, T. Harry Williams's biography of Huey Long, you know, Wallace was an, actually, he gets compared, Trump gets compared to Wallace. Wallace was a very reactive, in a lot of ways, limber politician in a way that Trump isn't. I would say the, the analog was the man who spoke two nights ago, who I ran into last night, Rudy Giuliani. I think the way Giuliani, I have always viewed now, every, look, I view everything through the prism of New York City politics, but it really does seem New York City politics, tabloid politics has gone national, right? And uh, Rudy's denigration of his critics, and you can go back on the lineage and look at Ed Koch. Koch did it in sort of a softer, more, more humorous way. But I think Trump learned a lot from Rudy and Koch. Well, he is from New York, and there probably is, maybe you're right, that in a certain way, oh, I guess I would, I'd probably defend Rudy more than you, but let, let yeah. me put it this way. 
look, you've always had demagogues. You've always had uh, celebrity politics. You've had the Jesse Ventures. Those have typically succeeded at the local or state level. Right. And we've always had people who don't care about issues and are just kind of ridiculous, uh, you know, uh, sort of blowhard, minor celebrity types. They tend to get elected to Congress or, or Senate. Right. And I just think it's very different for the political system when a certain percentage of those people flourish at the local or state level or some percentage of your congressmen are sort of bozos. Right. But, you know, or... Well, Mencken would talk about how yeah. like Congress is. That's just yeah. different from yeah. the presidency. And whatever you think, and this I, I mean, this sounds so earnest and kind yeah. of good government. I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but nonetheless, I will say it. You know, whatever you think of the people who run for president for the last, at least for my adult lifetime, and I would go back actually before that quite a bit, and maybe go back all the way. Frankly, they've all been reason. I mean, they've all been respectable people, I, and they were serious people, certainly on the Republican side. Right. The people I voted for ever since '72. I mean, Nixon's a complicated case, but you know he's a very impressive man in many ways, and former vice president for eight years and all that. Uh, and in my case, the first time I voted for him was '72, so president, incumbent president. And after that, you've got Ford, Reagan, Bush, Dole, Bush, McCain, Romney. You know, whatever. Again, limited. Some of them were not great right. candidates. You could criticize some of them on policy, but you know they are serious people. And I would say on the Democratic side, the same thing: Obama, yes. Clinton, Kerry. You know, go back to caucus, uh, Mondale. You know, serious and, people. Yeah, and and that really, in that respect, Trump really is something new for us. He's common in some other. Uh, uh, democratic systems. I, I think it's one way we've always viewed ourselves as a little bit exceptional, if you want, or superior to these other systems. We tend to have managed to keep the demagogues cabined at the state or local level. Huey Long was shot. We don't know if he might have succeeded in 36 in, in becoming more of a national demagogue. Wallace was a regional demagogue uh, taking advantage of you know a particular moment on the most fraught Topic in American politics, I, race. I, I, but in seventy two, one interesting question is: if George George Wallace had not been shot in nineteen seventy two, you know, people forget he was like it was not crazy that he would have been competitive for the Democratic well, he was nomination. Also different, I, 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 but he was different. I also agree with that. It was yeah, yeah. it was so Wallace but, was actually you know I mean the, I think the characteristic that Trump has, and I'm, I'm not diagnosing him here. I think it's just a statement of fact. Is there's a level of narcissism. Uh, to this guy that is sui generis. I've never seen, yeah. usually, I mean, Wallace Wallace could work a crowd. You know, I covered I, I covered the very tail end of Wallace when I was a reporter down in Alabama, right? Is that right? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, what, I mean, not when he was in office, but when he was dying, you know? Right. And uh, this was a guy who could really interact with people and had that thing where he was remembering the faces in the crowd. I don't think Donald Trump gives a shit about the faces no. in the crowd. He just sees the crowd. Right. Yeah. And it's all about him. And again, we can laugh about that a little right. bit. And God knows politicians are narcissistic and always have been and egomaniacs and all. But they sort of suppressed it. And they at least for prudential, you know, for reasons of success, had to pretend to be interested in other people and at least had to f figure out how to work other people. I mean, Trump is shrewd in that way, I suppose. He does seem to you know, when he meets people, he can sort of read them, I suppose, and take advantage of their weaknesses. But it's all about him. I mean, these stories that I think are totally true. And I've heard one or two you know, off the record that confirm yeah. them, that Trump, when he talks to Paul Ryan, when he talks to, interviewed some of these vice presidential candidates, he thinks his, he doesn't want to deal with policy. Right. And again, I'm not being overly earnest. He doesn't have to know the details of different versions of Medicare reform, but does he have to have some sense that we have an entitlement problem yeah. and that these are the alternative ways yeah. of dealing with it? You'd think a normal presidential candidate no, he has no intellectual, gets uh, look, to some level. He has no intellectual he, curiosity about any right. of this stuff. Uh, and I, I actually think, having covered the White House, I, I happen to think that you are actually, it, it's ironic to me that he's regarded as somebody who's portraying strength because that's a recipe for being having a staff-controlled president. Is yeah. somebody who doesn't have any, you know, we had Roger Stone on here, it's got to be two months ago. And Stone, very, 
you know, very overtly said, this is not a guy who's going to read a briefing book. He, everything has to be presented to him verbally, and you got 30 right. seconds. Yeah. I mean. I think I, he reads almost nothing. So he, the, I'll tell one story. I'm not sure I've told this publicly. Yeah. So at the very beginning, he announced, was it July, I think? And I, um, I, did, I was wrong about a lot of things in this cycle. I guess a lot of us were. But on this, I was right at the beginning that, that he might do better than people thought and was saying a few things that the other candidates were neglecting. So the first editorial I wrote, I think it was the first one, people can go check, after he announced was sort of, you know what? I, I, I said at the very beginning, Donald Trump was at the bottom of the list of, I was after, you know, of candidates that the Weekly Standard would ever consider supporting him and Rand Paul at that point. Not that we actually do support people editorially, but I said, you know, my colleagues and I, Right. I wouldn't, wouldn't, won't vote for him. He's at the very bottom of the list. But here are three or four issues he raised in his announcement speech that uh, are worth the other candidates paying attention to. And then for about a week, two weeks, it wasn't more than that, I think, I was not defending Trump, but I was sort of trying to make this case of, of taking him seriously. I think on that I was, I was correct. And um, so it was sort of portrayed as being a little bit anti-anti-Trump. I mean, sort of war- saying to the people who were right away just saying the guy's ludicrous, pathetic, ridiculous, disgusting. So you have to wait, just wait, be a little more cautious. I don't think I went much further than that in, quote, defending Trump. And certainly, I, anyway, so I'll tell the story. So I'm in the office on Friday. I remember that it was, I think, early August. He had announced in mid-late July. So it was two or three weeks after he had announced it was the, um, and he, the phone rings and my assistant gets it. And uh, they she says, someone who says she's Donald Trump's assistant is on the phone and wow. says Donald Trump wants to talk with you. And of course, I assume it's like a joke, one of my, you know, Steve Hayes or John McCormick <laughs> or someone causing trouble. But, um, but, you know, of course, who knows? And anyway, so what if I take it? It's a joke, it's a joke. So I said, yeah, we'll put it through. And this woman comes on and says, please hold for Mr. Trump. And then there he is calling me from, from no his kidding. plane about to take <clears> off, <throat> which is clever because he sort of had a good excuse to get off at about three right. So, hey, hey, Bill, good to talk to you. I said, hey, how are you? He said, hey, thanks a lot for what you've been, uh, I, said, I love your magazine, love your magazine. And they tell me it's really great. He said something that revealed, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't remember, I don't have photographic recall of this a year later, but he said something which at the time I remember laughing at my to myself about and talking to my colleagues about, which revealed that, of course, he didn't know. know it's no like, surprise. I love your restaurant, I hear you have coffee. Yeah, right. he's yeah, never yeah. read the Weekly Standard, but someone had told him, the Crystal edits this magazine, and you should say that, you know, it's a good magazine, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, but he did, had seen me, excuse me, had seen me on TV a couple of times, that's his medium, and I had been sort of warning against underestimating Trump. I said, hey, look, I, 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 that's, what he said, that's right, I know how it came out. He said, they told me you said you'd never really vote for me, but I'm gonna persuade you, other, I'm gonna persuade you otherwise, Bill, but anyway, I appreciate you, at least on TV, you're saying that, you know, people should listen to me and take me seriously, and you're fair, I really appreciate the fair, I always like fair-mindedness, you know, blah, blah. We'll have to get together sometime. Hey, got to hang up, got to take off for Iowa. And the, way I, the reason I remember this is he then it was like four or five in the Friday afternoon. I believe they then he then took off for Iowa. The next day was the day he made the comment about McCain, John McCain wow. and the wow. VOW. The next day after that, I was sort of randomly on uh, uh, this week with George Stephanopoulos, um, which I do every two or three weeks, but I mean, this happened to be a week I was on. And I think uh, Martha Raddatz was guest hosting and she asked me about it and I said, oh, he's dead to me, I can't, I can't. And, I, and of course I stupidly said, I think this is just gonna kill him. I mean, you can't right. defend the proposition to Republican voters that you have contempt for POWs because they got shot down. And of course I was totally wrong. Why did I go into this long, this long riff? I can't remember anymore because- No, um, no. You, but, no, the, no, the point was, I think, uh, uh, no, but wait, so, wait, let me get back to the anecdote. So did you get a word in edgewise? A few, but it was mostly he had his two minutes of, you know, flattering me sort of and telling me I was going to vote for him. Did you want to tell I mean, was there any moment there where did you want to tell him anything? Not really. And I it was like, I didn't want to make it seem like if he listened to me on one or two things, I would then vote for him. Because I just right. thought at the time, as I've thought throughout, that he's not 
qualified or really fit to be president. So that's why I had written that in that first editorial and why I've stuck to that throughout. So I didn't want to be in the business of kind of giving him advice. But, but by the way, and the, it was such a fast conversation, I probably didn't have much of a chance to anyway. So. On the, and his uh, and his taco salad, I think, was getting cold. But yeah, right. I, I think the um, the interesting thing is I, I've been privy to some of the polling of some of the uh, of some of the anti-Trump groups over the months, and one of the the McCain thing didn't really register that much with people. What did register with people was his uh, denigrating Serge Kovaleski, the Times reporter who has the disability. That one, by a factor of two in yeah. some of these focus groups, offends people. Is what and I, think. I think the Clinton campaign is using that quite yeah. prominently in their early advertising. I guess the reason I brought up the story is that it was, it was that he doesn't read it. I mean, just the, the, the funny thing about, uh, hey, they tell me you wrote this in the Weekly Standard. I mean, it was an 800-word editorial. I'm not at all like offended he didn't read it or anything like that. It just was kind of funny that they didn't, I think they literally didn't give him the, the one-page thing. thing to right. read. They sort of orally told him. Crystal says he's some, you know, they'll, they'll never vote for you, but he does say you should be taken seriously, you know, call him and try to keep him on board. And I board. would say you're a zippy read. <laughs> Which, like, yeah, I, I, I know. Read your and stuff. again, it's not at all, this is not at all vanity or anything like that. I was just amused by it, but I think it, but it, it confirms what yeah, I've yeah. been since told by other people, which is he really doesn't read anything. No, you're quite I like, mean, he's I, a, he listens, he's a, yeah. Yeah, he's a smart guy. I don't buy the argument that he's at all dumb or anything like that. He's a yeah. high IQ guy, I think. He listens, he's a quick study, he picks up stuff, he watches TV, he learns, as he himself said, didn't right. he, from the shows. But that's the level. But the notion that to be president of the United States, and again, I don't mean to be overly earnest. Right. You don't have the eight hour, you don't have, to have the eight hour briefing on the internal dynamics of Erdogan's party in Turkey and all that. That's yes. what assistant secretaries of state are for, you know? But yeah, but why you should you need, excuse me, why should you understand the reason? You should know dynamic, something. Right? I mean, like Turkey is a you know, and we have like, a we might have should, a base yeah. there. Yes. Perhaps? Now that kind of that <laughs> level of understanding and the basic choices you have to make are the Atlas missiles is still there? It's important to uh, <laughs> to have. But he doesn't think so. And you know what? Maybe He'll, okay, but let me. Okay, maybe we'll now experiment with having a president who doesn't think any of that's important. Now I'm going to bring the hammer down on you. Um, you you do have an enormous uh, uh, not an, an enormous knowledge of uh, world affairs, and uh, George W. Bush surrounded himself with people who were arguably some of the best informed people uh, of the past half century on this stuff, and and they made what appears in historical retrospect to be a pretty significant uh, error in judgment. Now. My my theory of uh, now you, now you can take your notes. Yeah, I'm reminding myself. <laughs> like, disagree with yeah. disagree with Thresh's, you know, Die overconfident Thresh. assertion Die. that it was an error. But anyway, Die, I'm, Thresh, I'll Die. just stipulate that we may disagree right. on this. But I'll take your point. Okay, All right. Go so, ahead. but in general, um, my my theory of the case is that uh, in a weird way, uh, Iraq was I, I think like the financial crisis to a certain extent in a lot of ways created some of the deepest internal divisions on the Democratic side. But I think Iraq had a Nixonian impact on the Republican Party and then it shattered faith. Uh, the, I, th I think the Iraq decision shattered faith in the core assertion that there was an establishment that knew what it was doing. Um, you obviously were part of that yeah. uh, process. So, so, Bill, isn't it your, isn't all this shit your fault? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Life is complicated. I totally agree, and I believe I've written yeah. myself the, yeah. the, the core point you're making about both parties, and I would just say it's a bipartisan thing. Yeah. The combination of the foreign policy uh, mistakes of the Bush administration, I would argue, is not having enough troops there at first and sticking right. with Rumsfeld's strategy, but let's just... <coughs> Leave that aside. The difficulties of Iraq, the failure to find the WMD, which of course destroyed confidence in the intelligence agencies, combined with the 0708 crisis, 
where the extra, hey, the experts said this can't happen again. They know what they're doing. Yeah. Alan Greenspan, he's spreading risk brilliantly among, you know, by, by chopping these mortgages up into 37 bits. I mean, I do believe those had a huge effect on the country as a whole, on both parties. Now, what was weird about, and I wrote in 08, I think that was the one year I wrote that column for the New York Times, the ill-fated weekly column for the New York Times. But I believe I made the point in the New York Times that, you know, the people, the public is not wrong to be suspicious of experts. What have experts gotten right over right. the last decade or two? They've been wrong a lot. And maybe a healthy suspicion, a healthy populist revolt, I've always been sympathetic to. Now, I think it was weird what that happened over the next eight years. I kind of expected it to happen more quickly. But that's and there were little the signs it of it. You, the, yeah. the, well, you think the delay. I mean, the delay is sort of the weird thing, though. Yeah. So I think, so for example, my first column for the New York Times, January 08, was a semi-defense of Mike Huckabee, of all people. I did it purposely sort of to make New York Times right. readers like, wow, yeah, what's going on? And But what was the contempt for Huckabee? Leave aside liberals who just didn't agree with him on anything, but among like the Wall Street Journal Republicans. Yeah. It was that Huckabee had this critique of Wall Street. He's, Wall Street is, is, is not right. doing well for the country, and the whole thing is dangerous. He wasn't very sophisticated. I don't think he understood exactly how the crisis was going to play out, who did, I suppose. But I remember semi-defending Huckabee's semi-populism, you might say, on the Republican <laughs> side, being said, you're crazy. This is terrible stuff. You know, we can ignore, suppress this, ignore this. And then in 2012, I was much more sympathetic to Santorum. Not so much on the social issues, actually, but on the kind of working class populism side of things. He was a real, uh, he was, he was he a real was a trailblazer They were both precursors. Yep, they were yep. Trump without the celebrity stuff. Mm -hmm. And with, in each case, I would say too much of the old-fashioned social conservatism that limited their appeal. And too appeal. little talent, really. And probably, yeah. 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 And so, and to, uh, but they were precursors, and I agree with that. And on the liberal side, obviously, Sanders is the, is the effect of all of this. And I, I very much agree that, so, so it's, of course, it's complicated. So one has sympathy with the revolt against the experts. But as I always say, it's fine. I mean, I have sympathy with the revolt, but sometimes you can correctly disdain the experts and embrace a set of policies that are even worse than the experts' policies. So right. that, you know, the fact that the experts get everything wrong don't mean that you then get everything right. And you can get them even more wrong. And I would argue that's the case with a lot of Trump's economic... <laughs> being, it is right to say dogmatic, orthodox embrace of pure free trade is probably... Uh, does not take account of the complexity of the world we live in. I, we've published that a million pieces, right. making that argument in the Weekly Standard. On the other hand, that doesn't, doesn't mean that protectionism would be good for, the, for America or for the world, right? No, so, no but, but let me push you on foreign policy, because I think, I think it has more to do, I think on the Republican side, it has more to do with Iraq, because, look, look at the last really unified Republican convention. I, you know, I, I, McCain was unified, and so was uh, Romney to a certain extent, but the last of those big-time conventions was in 04, and it, and it was really... A, the Republicans were the war party, and there was a great deal of unity post 9-11. And the Iraq experience shattered that coalition, don't you think? You know, I don't know. Yes and no. So on the one hand, yeah. I thought it might. I mean, of course, analytically, you would expect that to happen after a tough war. Right. But actually, the, the Ron Paul, Rand Paul stuff didn't, I mean, I think it was a big flop, basically. Right. I mean, at this time, if we were having this two or three years ago, the conventional wisdom, and here again, I was right, I think, was Rand Paul is going to be the exciting new flavor of 2015-16. Yeah. And I said, I don't think so, because I think the party, and this here, Obama, in a weird way, helped restore a kind of okay, we might not want to get into the details of Iraq, but being tougher is better, and withdrawing was a mistake, and not intervening in Syria led to, this led to 400,000 deaths or whatever. So, uh, again, fairly or unfairly, just saying, analytically, in a way, the Republicans were able to, to kind of coalesce among, uh, around a critique of Obama's foreign policy. Uh, I don't know how much of Trump's... I would be dubious... If Trump said, you know what, I... I oh, sorry, how much of Trump's appeal is for being a critic of Iraq... 
versus being a critic of free trade and, and the immigration issue. I would say Iraq's number three, but maybe that's my own wishful I think, thinking. I think Iraq is the... I think immigration was the big one. And we were going, and the establishment's going with a gang of eight bill, and the RNC saying we have to have be liberal on immigration was really set Trump up. And then having Jeb Bush, think about it, Jeb Bush, liberal on immigration, Marco Rubio, liberal on immigration, is the two main kind of establishment alternatives to to Trump really helped Trump. And I do think trade, which I've always minimized as an issue, is it's big. Huge. I don't think it's analytically huge. That is, I think honestly, it's if, we, if huge. we had if we had pursued different trade yes. policies, the effect on America, on Ohio, on manufacturing jobs would have been small, not right. nothing, but really small in the big picture of things. Right. But I, it has become the emblem, the symbol, whatever the right word is, for elite, you know, right. friendly, elite friendly policies being followed in a mindless right. way. And screwing regular kind of working class, middle class See, I think the, uh, that, that I underestimated. I think of the immigration thing as an extension of kind of the, the natural kind of aggressiveness of the Republican Party, uh, usually, mani- usually manifested in the modern time by, by kind of a strong military. Because I think the great paradox of Trump, and, you, and you've illustrated this, is this guy talks, talks incredibly tough and has a very, actually, a very Obamian Right, like a very Obamian approach to the kind of actual commitments he wants to make. Right, that's the fascinating thing. It's like what we need to do is start talking like Reagan, but continue with an Obama foreign policy. Right. Yeah, I mean, I just don't know. Again, I don't know how important that is. If he had more of a McCainish foreign policy, would it have changed his appeal much? I think if he had combined, I think the anti-immigration stuff was huge, the trade stuff was huge, right. and being strong. I agree, the Fortress America type of strong or America First type of quote strength. Is probably fits in better with those other policies than a McCain Bush like aggressive internationalism because that does imply, as Bush to his credit saw, and he doesn't get enough credit for this, that if you're going to try to help liberal Democrats around the world, you're going to have to do nation building, a term that no one will embrace right. anymore, and you're going to have to have a Petraeus like attitude towards winning people over. And, you know, and Bush to his credit went down that road. Now he's mocked for it both on the right and the left, but right. actually, I, I, he did see that you couldn't just, as Rumsfeld wanted to do, go in, depose Saddam, and leave. But it turned that was difficult. Well, as my friend, it, didn't, it wasn't implemented very well, and now we're in a sort of Rumsfeldian. I mean, I'd say in that respect, Trump is more Rumsfeldian, which is ironic for me because it's the most failed. In my view, it's sort of the the worst of all worlds. You know, right. be very aggressive, but then don't be serious about following up on well, then you, being well, aggressive. Well, because then you know, then you get into a situation where you make a promise, and eventually you have to deliver on that promise, and then and that's what really creates a difficult situations. But let me ask you something. Yeah. You mentioned seventy two is the first time you voted for. Uh, uh, it was my first presidential election. It was your first presidential yeah. election. Um, your family, uh, when you go back to your dad, you know, I don't know, I, I guess I know the, the Podhoretz story, the parallel Podhoretz story uh, more than yours, but your dad, was your dad uh, a re- kind of the red diaper baby that that moved in that moved in the conservative direction? In the I mean, he yeah. invented the term neoconservative, so he did in right. a way, but I'd say he was never, he was a liberal, he was an anti I mean, he was a, Trotsky is just a very young man at City College and then a socialist. By the way, I, am a bra- I will tell you flat out, I am a uh, part of my family is the Bronsteins, and I think I'm a linear descendant of Leon Trotsky. Well, I can see the resemblance. <laughs> <laughs> no, Trotsky was a handsome man. So I'll never take, go- don't take that wrong. Thank you. I will never go to Mexico. <laughs> yeah, wise. But he fought in the war as an enlisted guy, and right. I think that destroyed any of his illusions about, uh, you know, communism or socialism. And so he was a liberal anti-communist for his, from, I'm going to say, you know, from the war, 45 on to, uh, through the 50s and 60s, and always 
a, a critic of more conventional progressive liberalism. So it's a bit of a myth that, you know, he invented the phrase uh, neoconservative as a liberal who's been mugged by Did he reality. For, but he, was, he but voted for Roosevelt, right? He may have been too young, yeah. but yeah, I would have, I think. Yeah. yeah, I voted for Truman. And so in 19... And, but, but he was never as much of an orthodox liberal, as all I'm saying, right. uh, or certainly a left liberal, as, as some of the other people who became neoconservatives. It was always a streak of... Um, he read a lot of people who are now thought to be kind of neoconservative mm -hmm. authors as a young man, always respectful of religion. It was slightly unorthodox, but anyway, you can read his essays from the 40s and 50s and 60s. They're quite good. Um, but in 68, he wrote a piece for the New Republic um, making the case for Humphrey. Now, it was a case for Humphrey against Kennedy and McCarthy. I think Kennedy may still have been alive at that point in 68 uh, during the campaign. But also, of course, preferred Humphrey to, to Nixon. So that's where sort of the anti-communist liberals were then. And 72, he was one of those people who, I think, signed a newspaper thing saying, right. you know, I think we need to be for Nixon over McGovern. So in that respect, yes, he's... And it was very New York, by the way, the, what people don't really understand is New York had the creation, and you know this history as, as well, the Hardings and the Liberal Party were created by, by anti-communist Jews right. who were tired of having... Uh, Jewish liberals perceived as being Reds. I mean, there was some a of them were Reds. I mean, that's why were, they yeah. had to create their own party and break right. from the progress. Yeah, progressive. So anyway, I don't. So he by '72, he uh, you know he, he he supported Nixon and uh, and then uh, the neoconservatives moved into the Reagan coalition. Really, Gene Kirkpatrick was a very right. close friend and that kind of thing. By by the end of by after Carter, after the failed last gasp of that kind of liberalism, I would say. But here's a question I want I want to run by you. Uh, you are uh, on on most social issues. You would describe yourself as being moderate, right? Yeah, moderately conservative. I'd say I was more conservative than a lot of the neoconservatives who are you pro, were, are you pro liberal. Are you pro choice? Generally no, speaking, no. I've always been pro life. You've always been yeah. pro life. You've uh, you are. How, how do you stand on civil unions and gay marriage? I accept it. I is you know I was, but I was more of a defender of traditional marriage. We only published things in the Weekly Standard on that side of things. I don't think it was a good court decision. But I also think, you know what, I mean, it's not my business. I, I don't get, I get one vote out of 330 million and I, I'm, I think it could be a great country with, with same-sex marriage. I'm not worried about it. Right. <laughs> and you are, uh, you, you're, you're broadly a supply sider? Like, I mean. Yeah, I think Reagan's type of economic reforms were good for the country and good for the world. And again, this is one of the things that annoy, if I can take a second on this, yeah, yeah. the most annoys me about Trump and the reaction to Trump. Trump doesn't annoy me. Trump is Trump. You know what I mean? He's yeah. a demagogue. He's whatever he is. It's the reaction to Trump, the accommodation of Trump, the normalization of Trump by so many Republicans and conservatives that does annoy me. He was right about one thing, the weakness of the Republican establishment. And you can see it on display this week uh, as everyone sort of accommodates, not to say grovels, uh, to him. But what it has led to, incidentally, is a non-defense of some traditional Republican and conservative policies that are worth defending. And, right. and they were too simple. They weren't perfect. You can't go back to 1980. I understand all of that. But at the end of the day, the basic defensive markets against what people forget was a very powerful uh, socialist, democratic socialist, you know, um, movement right. worldwide. The fact that China and India went in a market direction in my opinion, lifted hundreds of millions, probably billions of people oh, it's a, out it's a of terrible, it's a historic achievement. We're in the middle of the, right. what people the greatest do, moral... The, it is the most unbelievable, it's the problem is it's happening due, outside of our and borders. And it's due yes. to, and yes. even in America, I mean, there's been yes. progress over 40 years, and a lot of that's due to markets, again, in a non-dogmatic way, it doesn't mean you have to have perfect free trade, or, and a lot of that is due to um, an American-maintained world order, which has basically meant there have been no wars in East Asia in the last 40 years for the first 40-year segments right. in modern history, and has meant that people could get about, you know, uh, improving their lives. And again, conservatives should defend that. That's a genuine achievement, okay, I but, would say. And Trump, of course, attacks it all or, or is... 
But let me let me oblivious keep to it. And conservatives are much too much now, in my opinion. Say, yeah, you're right. That was that was sort of simple minded. That me, belief me, in American leadership in the world. Keep, and let me free keep markets. going down my laundry list here for a second because uh, because I have a point to make, which is um, uh, if you sort of look at kind of a, ra- a Kissingerian, a rationalist sort of foreign policy and kind of an asymmetrical environment, somebody who really understands that that's that's what you're about about projection of power uh, in a pretty significant way. Um, why is it uh, now you have huge disagreements with Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama on market stuff, and you d- and you think that obviously that Obama's foreign policy wasn't robust enough in the red lines and whatnot. But Hillary Clinton is a much more uh, interventionist. She's a classic liberal interventionist, right? She argued for for Libya. To to some extent, isn't she a? Are you and folks like you moving more in her direction generally? I think I'm probably closer to Hillary Clinton than to Donald Trump on foreign policy, um, and maybe trade for that matter, though her party has a lot of problems with free trade. I'm closer to, who knows what Trump is, I'm probably closer to the Republicans who would, I'm certainly closer to the Republicans who would staff a Trump <coughs> administration on a heck of a lot of domestic policies, right. which are important policies for the future of the country, ranging from Supreme Court appointments to kind of identity politics, gone yep. and various other things. So if it were a domestic policy election, I probably would swallow hard and vote for Trump. If it were a pure foreign policy election, I'd probably swallow hard and vote for Hillary Clinton. But since the president has a lot to do with foreign and domestic policy both, I, for now, at least think that I still would like there to be a third choice. But anyway, I really don't would prefer not to. And also, I think the ethical issues with Hillary Clinton are more of a problem. What are you going to do? Kane, if Tim Kaine were the Democratic nominee or, I don't know, any generic, yeah. you know, I don't know, like a loop or something, you know, but generic you could vote Democrat. For, if, if Tim Kaine were, who, who actually yes, fits I, your profile, you'd vote for Tim I would say I would probably vote for Tim Kaine over. But you're not going to vote for Hillary? Uh, I don't think so. Is this an election where you may but not? I also want to say, and I yeah. really am never Trump and never Hillary, yeah, yeah. and I don't want to, but having said all that, you can say never Trump, never Hillary, all you want, but in the, as a real citizen in a real yeah. democracy, one would have to look up around October 20th and say, well, what if we learned anything that has changed? Have you learned anything that's changed your mind over the campaign? I don't expect to. You are st- but you are still persuadable on some you level. Well, I think one has to be just because, again, in the real world, I'm not that one vote's going to matter or what I say is going to matter, but you know, you'd want to sort of try to be responsible and maybe stuff will happen over the next three months that really will change my opinion either about Clinton or Trump, I think that's unlikely, or more likely perhaps about the urgency of some set of issues. I mean, look, if Trump, you know, that's why his speech Thursday night is important, and not for me, but because there are voters out there. If he sounds like, let's say, John Bolton, I'm not quite where John Bolton is on foreign policy, but you know, hard-headed realist, shouldn't intervene in Libya and stuff like that, but still basically an aspect at least of the Reagan tradition, That'll be one thing. If Trump sounds like Pat Buchanan, that's another, you know? And right. therefore, I, I don't, leaving me aside, I think there's a, some chunk, obviously this is kind of a, maybe chunk of a, a sort of kind of, a, of an elite, you might say, but probably one that has some ramifications throughout the country, I'd say in the military, for example, uh, and other people who are interested in America's role in the world. It would make a big difference if he sounds more like John Bolton or more like Pat Buchanan Thursday night. Put the percentage, uh, what's the percentage that Bill Crystal votes for Donald Trump ultimately? I think very low, very, very low. Because, that, because for me, it's, that is character. And so what do you do? You're going, At the end of the day, the President of the United States is, I and mean, that just is commander-in-chief. So I might not vote. I, I don't really, I'm not very moved by the, oh, you've got to vote at your right. city. No, it's a free country. America, unlike some other countries, does not have mandatory voting. And one way to say what you want to say is not to vote for the presidency and vote down, down ballot. And, and that's, that's a way of voting, too. Well, I'll dismount on an incredibly light note. And that is, uh, do you think the guy's an anti-Semite? <laughs> no, not in the normal sense that he has some wakes up every morning thinking that, you know, I, I, don't, I wish there 
Jews weren't around or stuff. I don't think it's pretty hard to be a successful New York businessman for 50 years and, and have that. And there's just not much evidence of that in his actual life. And obviously his daughter's now a practicing Jew. I think he is extremely tolerant of very bad types, both on anti-Semitism and on racism and bigotry in general. Right. And I think that's itself a kind of carelessness, to use a term that's been used recently about Hillary Clinton, but I would use it for Trump, a kind of carelessness that, again, we've tended to hold presidents to somewhat higher standards. And when they have it, incidentally, when Obama, when everyone discovered Jeremiah Wright and the, the sermons and all that, President Obama, maybe it was disingenuous, it was political, I understand that, had to give a major speech saying, look, on that aspect of my pastor, I can't defend him and I won't defend him. That's not unimportant. It may have been, as I say, my conservative friends all thought, hey, can you believe he's getting away with just making one speech and that erases 10 years ago to the church? Well, that's a fair point to make. Right. But still, he gave the speech. He gave the speech. I think it was, I think and it was. Donald Trump yeah. has not given that speech. You think he needs to? I think it would be better for the country if he did, yeah. The I love the Jews speech. <laughs> but I got, I got to be honest with you. I'm a little surprised. I thought you would have you would have leaned in a little bit harder on this. This guy has uh, retweeted time and time again stuff from white supremacist groups that the the Jewish star thing. Come on, man. You know. No, I know. Well, that's terrible. I agree with that. Yeah. I, I, can't, know, I, can't I, I am in. I am right now in the position of trying to goad Bill Crystal into calling uh, I, Donald I, I Trump. Don't know. I, I, I'm so annoyed by the overuse <laughs> of that term in a way and the and the lack of serious sort of uh, gradations between a kind of tolerance of, you know, of stuff that shouldn't be tolerated as opposed to actually going around trying to uh, kill Jews or destroy the state of Israel that I guess I'll, 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 I'll anyway. It's, uh, I, lied, I lied. There was one last thing. So uh, <laughs> you are, uh, my sense is that you are over the last couple of days walking around, uh, you, you've been wearing gra gra Groucho glasses and a mustache walking around the streets of Cleveland. It's fantastic. That's yeah, right. It really works well. Those disguises. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it is my sense, I have heard through the grapevine that you're starting to feel a little nervous. Uh, you've had conversations with some regular Americans, which I know is difficult for you. Uh, <laughs> Can you believe the abuse here I am and the abuse I take? Uh, how are you feeling right Just now? Just trying to bust your, you know, bolster your liberal credentials right. by going out on a, on a harsh note. Hey, yes. watch it, kid. Uh, how are you feeling in terms of, uh, I mean, who do you think is going to win at this point? Uh, I'd say one, two things, though, about yeah. these disguise. Actually, people have been very nice, and right. I think mostly because people are nice and Republicans are polite, uh, maybe. And also, I, there's a lot of anti-Trump sentiment on the convention floor, I mean, and among Republican types. And they, most of them, unlike me, are, we've got to get along, we've got unity, we're going to rationalize this, but they're not happy about where they are. I think that's really a very big undercurrent at this convention. Who's going to win? I mean, I have the conventional view that Hillary Clinton is more likely than not to win. She's been ahead, and uh, Democrats have won the last five of the last six popular votes, and it would seem unlikely that Trump, with everything, with his massive negatives, is going to be the guy to turn that around. But I am a little, I guess I, I would, if I had to lean against the conventional wisdom on this, I would say and I, that he has more of a chance than people think. I do think there's probably some hidden vote, kind of a Brexit yep. kind of thing. Um, and I'll tell one quick story. I went to lunch Monday with a couple of younger colleagues, and uh, it was a board restaurant, right? a hamburger place joint. A uh, nice waitress, um, chatting with her, mid-late 20s, has two little kids, apparently. Uh, she's taking them to Disney World at the end of the week. It was discussing that, just joking about that, talking about that. Uh, she'd never been before. Um, kind of working class, you know, middle, lower middle class background, clearly, and working hard as a waitress, seemed like an admirable young woman. Um, and after got a little chatting a little more, some one of my colleagues said, well, do, do you mind if we ask who you're going to vote for? And she sort of hesitated and said, well, don't tell too many people around here, but I'm going to vote for Trump. And one of my colleagues said, why? And she said, um, 
well, I got a couple of, yeah, I think generally so tougher. I don't like Hillary Clinton, but also I've got a couple of relatives who are cops, policemen, yep. highway patrol, whatever, and I don't like what's happening with respect to the police, and I think Trump will be tougher on all of that. And I said, I couldn't quite tell her age, and she struck me as maybe someone who isn't a regular voter, so I just was curious. And I said, well, have you ever have you right. voted for president before? And she said, uh, yeah, I voted for Obama twice. Wow. I mean, how many, you know, if, there, if that's a non-trivial swath of the country, you know, um, that would be a big moment. I mean, she's not a social conservator, God knows. She has these two little kids that didn't seem to be a husband in the picture. Um, she's a young person. I'm sure she found Obama much more congenial than uh, John McCain, who was her grandparents' age, or Mitt Romney, who was almost her grandparents' age. Uh, and if someone like, you know, if some non-trivial chunk of voters are moving over to Trump away from uh, Obama, that, and, and she's also the type, I bet, if she got a phone call at home, a, she probably doesn't have a landline, and B, she probably is not telling Post if she's for Trump, but she thinks it's kind of politically incorrect. And final point on that, just to go, not to go on yeah. I mean, this is a young woman, and isn't Hillary Clinton supposed to be like, you know, first woman president? I mean, the, the degree to which that appeal, which I think we were all taking kind of seriously yeah. as an analytical thing, six, eight, nine months ago, I've talked to seems to have totally like collapsed. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Uh, maybe not. I, mean, I don't know either. I think the but. convention, I think we're focusing so much on Cleveland. I think it, this year the order of the conventions has never been more important. It's, I think the fact that the Democrats get the last word is a big, big deal this year. It puts a lot of pressure on them, though. Yeah. Well, listen, Bill, it was a blast. Great talking to you. <laughs> Good talking to you, Glenn.